Hello, and welcome to episode 30 of the New Standard Podcast. Okay, so, actually, that's cheating. I'm away for a few days, and so this is a rebroadcast of episode 6, my interview with Mike Bursick. I thought this was a particularly good episode, and since there are more of you guys listening now, uh, I thought that I would remaster it a little bit to get rid of some of the background noise in the original version and let you hear the conversation that Mike and I had in full. Mike has a really unique perspective on the industry. He founded Sacred Rides, the first mountain bike tour company, as well as Bikes Without Borders, and he runs online courses for social entrepreneurs. He has a great perspective on how bikes can be a vehicle for change, and also on how the skills that you learn as a mountain biker prepare you to be a good entrepreneur. This conversation is as relevant now as it was five months ago when we first recorded, so I hope you all enjoy. Without further ado, here is Mike. So, how's it going, Mike? It's going great. Beautiful, beautiful day in Toronto. Summer's finally arrived. So, yeah, exciting. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so I was uh, really excited to talk to you today, uh, mostly about uh, Sacred Rides and uh, the tour company. Um, so I'm wondering if you could just start out talking about a little bit about uh, the company. How did you get started? How has it changed over the years? Uh, what's, your, what's your mission with the company? Sure. Yeah, it's funny because... Uh, I started the company, it's almost 20 years ago to the day, in, in about a month it'll be our 20th anniversary. And I was living in, in Fernie, British Columbia at the time, and I'd moved there the, the fall before, it was, it was uh, springtime of uh, 1996 when I started the company, and I'd moved there the previous fall, and I promptly got fired from my first two jobs, <laughs> <laughs> one of which was a lifting, and the other was uh, working the day shift at a kind of rough and tumble miners bar. And... Uh, I realized that I, w- I wasn't a very good employee and that I would probably fare better just working for myself. And uh, I convinced a friend. I saw, I saw a, a, an opening in the marketplace. Fernie had an amazing trail network. Uh, the time it was really starting to develop as a mountain bike destination. And there were more and more tourists coming in, you know, mainly from Calgary and the prairies and stuff like that, mainly coming for winter, but they were starting to come in for summer and this great trail network that was really hard to find. And I saw an opportunity there. And, Convinced a friend to go in on it with me, and he, he left after about year four to become a chiropractor. But we just started out offering day trips uh, in, the, in the Elk Valley, the area around Fernie. And that was pretty slow to take off. In about year three, we started offering week-long uh, trips into the backcountry. And those, those uh, quickly caught fire. And people, you know, beautiful area there and really remote uh, places we were taken to, you know, the... The area southeast of Fernie is the biggest grizzly bear population in the world. Really? And uh, really, the Flathead Valley, it's called, and really wild, beautiful area. It's, people really responded well to that. Nobody got eaten by grizzlies uh, <laughs> or attacked. And uh, so I did that for about 10 years, running trips in British Columbia. It was really sort of a hobby business. Uh, I, you know, our season was two and a half months long in, in the summer. And then I moved back to Toronto for various reasons in, in 2006 and was sort of at a... At a uh, a bit of an inflection point, you know, do I continue with this business? How is this possibly going to support me, you know, living in Toronto? My cost of living is way higher than, than Fernie, and what else do I want to do with my life? And I was on the verge of actually selling it and folding it, you know, folding it, selling it, whatever. 
Uh, and I got a very timely email from a fellow in Peru who was looking for somebody to partner up with to uh, develop longer, you know, week-long, 10-day-long trips in Peru. And he was just doing day trips there. For some reason, he found me out. I don't know how. But, uh, and that was the start of, you know, the, the, the back then the company was called Fernie Fat Tire Adventures. And that was sort of the birth of Sacred Rides, which came out of uh, an experience in the Sacred Valley of Peru. But, uh, and that was really, you know, my eyes were open to the possibility of, of bringing mountain bike tourism together with really meaningful, incredible travel. And because you're on a mountain bike, you can get to these places that you, know, you can't get to by foot because they're too far. You can't get to them in a van because you just can't get to them in a van. And uh, it, was, it was a really incredible experience. And from there, we expanded to Chile and then Slovenia, Guatemala, and we're in 15 destinations now. I'm just putting together the finishing touches on a, a new fat bike trip in Greenland. Uh, so things have really taken off. Uh, since then, and we've, we've grown quite a bit. Uh, the future, we're actually a couple months away from launching a new program that I can probably best describe as Airbnb meets CrossFit. And uh, I don't want to give too much away before we launch, but it's, it's a program that's going to allow us to scale really rapidly. And our, and our goal is within five years to be in 150 countries. And wow. uh, so obviously, you know, we're going 10 times uh, where the destinations we're, we're, we're at now, but uh, this model is really going to allow us to do that. And that's kind of, that's always been my big goal is to bring mountain bike tourism to every, every corner of the world. I see it as a, you know, as a force for good, ultimately. Uh, and uh, so that's, that's got me really jazzed these days and excited. That's awesome. I didn't realize how much the uh, kind of scope of the company had changed over the years. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, you you brought up right now um, about uh, mountain bikes being kind of a force for force for good, and one of the fascinating things to me that came out of uh, your work in Sacred Rides is uh, the Bikes Without Borders, um, the the nonprofit that you run, and so you have uh, on the website that I suggest anybody who's listening that. You check out the kind of about us, the, the backstory. It's a, a really fascinating story about um, a girl in the village in Peru, I believe, right? In Nicaragua. Sorry, Nicaragua. Yeah. Peru factors into the story as well. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so, yeah, I'm wondering if you could speak a little to that. You know, how can how can bikes be a force for good? And, and how does that play into your nonprofit? Mm -hmm. well, well, first off, you know, we're, we're practicing a very uh, low-impact you know, by mountain biking, low impact, sustainable mode of travel. Uh, and of course, people have to fly to these destinations, but uh, which has a fairly high footprint. But we also encourage our customers to, uh, you know, we're not advocating for people to not travel because, you know, huge parts of the developed, developed and developing world rely on tourism as their primary drivers of the economy. And if that were to shut down, you know, uh, there'd be really dire straits for a lot of portions of the world. So, we're trying to encourage people to travel less frequently, but travel more deeply. So, you know, go somewhere for, for a month instead of doing, you know, four one-week vacations, something like that. Cut down on your carbon footprint, still travel, contribute to these economies. Uh, and when we're there, it's, it's an extremely, you know, being on mountain bikes, it's an extremely low-impact form of travel. And we are, you know, in these, uh, these communities, these remote communities, we're keeping as many dollars as we can in those communities. We hire only local guides. Uh, we choose our suppliers very carefully, so uh, and we're providing employment, and so it's. Uh, I see a lot of benefit benefit to it. And then bikes without borders came out, came about. Um, 
the, the girl in Nicaragua, I'd met her on a, on a six-week trip through Nicaragua, and she was in this remote community in northern Nicaragua, and uh, got to talking to her, and this was at her school, this one-room schoolhouse, and she told me that she walked every day, she walked two hours to school, sat in school for three hours, and then walked two hours back. So out of her seven hours, she was spending more than half of that just getting to and from school. And, uh, you know, my experience growing up was I would bike to school and it would take me five minutes, you know, from my house to school. And, and it's sort of, you know, a light bulb, like, geez, if this girl had a bike, she could uh, really, you know, it would really affect her life dramatically. And so, and that sort of just stewed around in my brain. And then about six, six months to a year later, we were, um, we, were off, we were operating one of our first trips to Peru. And one of the customers on that trip emailed me and said, hey, I've got all these bikes that uh, some of them are my kids' bikes. They're in great shape. And some are bikes that other friends have donated to me. And they're in great shape. Do you think uh, they'd be useful in Peru? So I emailed my guide and I said, hey, you know, we've got about 10, 12 bikes uh, here in great shape. Can, you know, could these be of any use down there? And he said, yeah, I know just the community. They would absolutely love to have these bikes. So I loaded those up. Uh, it was a bit of a comical story getting them down to Peru, but we won't get into that here. Um, and we took them to this community called San Pedro de Casta, way up high in the Andes. And uh, we donated them to the local schoolhouse and uh, met with the schoolmaster there and said, hey, you know, here's some bikes. Do with them as you will. Uh, let us know if you need parts or anything like that. I went back about six months later and went back to the same community and this schoolmaster comes running out to greet me and he's pumping my, my, my hand up and down, shaking, shaking my hand, oh, you, oh, these bikes are so amazing, you won't believe it. We've been renting out the bikes to the local farmers for, I think you said, like four cents a day and uh, it's helping to generate funds for the school. The farmers love it because they can get to their crops way faster, they can spend more time farming, more time with family. And then the kids' bikes, they were giving them to kids as a reward for, uh, you know, if they tried hard in school. And all these kids, you know, none of whom had bikes, loved these bikes. So they, they, he said, like, grades, you know, the kids' grades have gone through the roof and everybody's really, uh, you know, trying hard to get these bikes. And uh, that was, that continued for about another year or two, sort of informally, just collecting bikes. And then a couple of years into this, into this, my fiance suggested, hey, why don't we, you know, develop a proper nonprofit out of this? And that's where Bikes Without Borders was born. Uh, it's now a registered charity and we operate we've operated programs in Africa as well as we have a local program here in Toronto as well. And so the, the mission in a nutshell is just using bikes as a tool for development in, in marginalized communities. So uh, it's come, come a long way since then. And have you gotten feedback from these communities that have changed the way that you go about this? Yeah, we, we, did, a, we did a program in Malawi where we supplied bikes to community health workers. And so these are people who are trained by NGOs, by community organizations to provide services that help out, you know, the woefully inadequate medical system. So they might dispense antiretrovirals, do TB tests, stuff like that, visit people, care for people in their homes. Um, and, these, and these people are severely hampered by transportation. They'll typically walk village to village long distances. And so, you know, they're quite limited in how many patients they can see. And so we did a program where we provided them with new bikes um, and training and all kinds of stuff. And we also provided these community organizations with bike ambulances. So they were stretchers on, on wheels. Uh, and you can see pictures of that in the Bikes Without Borders website. And that brings, you know, typically in a remote community in Malawi, if you get ill and you don't have the money to afford a car or a donkey cart or something like that, uh, you'll either have to convince people to carry you to a clinic that might be, you know, 10 miles away or, or you, you know, become quite ill and die in your community. And that's all, all too frequent. 
And uh, we actually did quite an extensive studying of the program afterwards, uh, outlining the impact of, of, of this program. And uh, I don't know the exact statistics, but there was a significant increase in the number of patients they could see. Uh, because a lot of these community health workers were volunteers, they were also using the bikes in their off days for farming and what, you know, whatever else they might do. So there was significant economic impact as well as health impacts and all kinds of other impact. And so things that most people take for granted, like getting from A to B in an easy fashion, you know, car, public transit, whatever, uh, is you know, something that is still very much a challenge in big parts of the world. So bikes can play a huge part there. And to the point of, uh, of the kind of global impact of, uh, of Bikes Without Borders, but in general of, of biking, um, I'm wondering how, uh, how the people who've got on the trips with Sacred Rides um, come back? Like, what's the kind of feedback you get from people who, who go on these trips uh, to places that they might never have otherwise seen or definitely not in the same way that uh, they get to through Sacred Rides? Yeah, great question. I'll, I'll give you two stories. Uh, one recent and one one uh, a little more distant. Uh, I think just two or three weeks ago, a woman uh, did our magnificent mesas trip in, in in southwestern Utah. So this is like Grand Canyon, Zion, Bryce, like these iconic areas in the southwest. And she at the end of each trip, they fill in a survey, you know, telling us about the lodging, the food, the experience, all that kind of stuff. And her comments in that were, uh, this was you know this was simply one of the most incredible trips I've ever taken on and, and it impacted me deeply. She said, I've been experiencing, you know, all kinds of changes and difficulties in my life recently. And this uh, not only improved my biking, which I've wanted to do, my mountain biking, which I've wanted to do for many years, but really, uh, really caused me to self-reflect and, uh, you know, examine where my life is. And, and I feel like I have a lot more clarity about that. And uh, basically, she just felt deeply moved by the experience. You know, going through these challenges together in a shared group environment, making friends, experiencing these, you know, really uh, sacred places. And, and that's part of the, the reason for the name. It's certainly not a religious thing. It's just about experiencing, you know, sacred moments in our lives. And we try to encourage that, whether it's through visiting, you know, really amazing places or through just having quiet moments or stuff like that. And uh, so she was quite impacted by the trip. And the other story is from a woman who did our surf and single track in Chile about eight years ago, she wrote me after the trip, uh, she wrote me during the trip on, on, I think it was day three of the trip, on the Cerro El Roble Trail, which is about an hour or two outside of San Diego, uh, very challenging trail, and she wrote me and she said, that was one of the most intense, most difficult, and most incredible experiences of my life, specifically this trail, and she said, I, I really didn't think I could do it when I started out, but the guides were super encouraging, and they uh, they got me down the trail, and I just felt an incredible boost of confidence from just being able to tackle this quite difficult trail. And then at the end of her trip, uh, she wrote me, you know, some more to that effect. Like that was just an incredible trip. It really, uh, it really showed me how much I'm, I'm capable of actually doing. And then a year later, her brother wrote me, uh, and he told me, and he wrote me, and he said, "I don't know what happened in Chile." But my sister came back a completely changed woman. And he said she had been undergoing significant, uh, severe depression before this trip. And her life had not been going well. And she'd lost her job and, and so on. And she said, since this trip, she's, she's found a job that she loves. She's found the love of her life. And they're getting married. And she's just 
come back a completely changed woman, full of confidence and, and uh, you know, really going after life with gusto. And I've stayed in touch with her, and, you know, she's had kids since. And uh, that doesn't happen for everyone, of course. You know, some people just go, they want to have a great, you know, mountain bike experience. And But for a lot of people, it, it, it becomes a, a deeply impactful and moving experience. And I just got back a few weeks ago from Greenland uh, on an incredibly difficult trip uh, along the Arctic Circle Trail on, on fat bikes. And uh, it was, you know, it, it, having young kids, I haven't traveled that much lately. And so that was a reminder of just how, uh, how impactful travel can be in, in going through these challenges and these experiences. Um, wow, those are some incredible stories. Yeah. Um, and so I guess um, to that, you're some of the work that you're doing outside of Sacred Rides and Bike Without Borders is more um, to help uh, entrepreneurs who uh, are interested in social entrepreneurship uh, kind of achieve their uh, their goals and uh, start their companies and grow their companies. And um, I, I mean, in the introduction, I kind of talked about all of the <laughs> things that you do, which is quite an extensive list. But I'm wondering if you're... If you feel like there's a, a, a corollary between mountain biking and entrepreneurship in the sense of risk taking and the sense of um, kind of having to push yourself beyond your limits and take calculated risks that might seem crazy to somebody else, but uh, are actually uh, within your, um, your abilities. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you know, interesting enough, a few years ago, I wrote, I wrote a blog post, 20 things mountain biking teaches, mountain biking teaches you about life. Uh, and it was all, you know, I, I, as I was on my bike, I started to see all these parallels between the actual act of mountain biking and how one might approach life from, you know, very direct metaphors, such as how you approach obstacles to, you know, keeping, keeping your eye on the trail ahead instead of thinking about, you know, what's behind you, that kind of stuff. But um, it, it's, you know, it's, it's, Greenland is still very fresh in my mind. And the, the first, and that was an extremely arduous trip. Uh, and this was a, essentially we were doing a test run of a new trip and I was the guinea pig. <laughs> and, uh, um, we did a six day trip and we compressed it into four days simply because of time constraints. So that certainly added to the, the, the challenge of it. And it was extremely arduous in the, the, First, both from a physical standpoint and from a weather standpoint, um, the first two days were two of the hardest days I've experienced, you know, probably in the last 10 to 15 years in terms of physical challenge. And particularly on day one, it was a big day, it's 55 kilometers of biking, which is, doesn't sound like a lot if you're a road biker, but on a fat bike, believe me, you're not going very slow. Uh, this, this, was, and this is on snow and ice, and this was... Uh, you know, seven, eight hours of full-on just pedaling almost non-stop. Uh, and the last 25 kilometers were on this frozen frozen lake. We did a lot of riding on frozen lakes there. And we got about halfway through the lake, and the, the other woman, there was a journalist with me who was biking in two snowmobiles, and she was well ahead of me, um, fitter than me, I guess. <laughs> and, um, and then the other snowmobile was ahead. And the, other, the, the, the second snowmobile, the one that was behind me, came up to me and said, hey, how's it going? I said, oh, I'm, I'm fine. Why don't you go ahead, to, uh, go ahead to the cabin and you know, warm up dinner and get it heated up and stuff like that. I'm, I'm fine. So he took off. And then within about 10, 15 minutes, you know, a kilometer or two later, I completely hit the wall. 
and just ran out of gas completely. I had nothing left. And I actually put down the bike and I just laid down on this frozen lake in the middle of complete, absolute wilderness in Greenland. Uh, everybody else was completely gone, so I had no other option. Uh, I didn't have a radio or anything on me. And, you know, I knew eventually they would probably come back for me and say, where, where the hell are you? But uh, uh, at that point, I was like, okay, I'm kind of on my own here. And I nothing left in the tank. And so it became a mental game. Like, what do I do with myself? And I just got back on the bike and just started, you know, just started playing this mental game with myself. Just keep the pedals moving. Keep the pedals moving. And this was, you know, it was like, it was like trying to climb Everest that oxygen that you can barely breathe and there's nothing left but you, you just got to keep going and uh and so it was 10 10 kilometers of that of just forcing myself to battle through the pain and the fatigue and whatever and actually I arrived at the cabin and completely collapsed that same scene played itself out the next day uh mainly my own fault because I misjudged uh how far we were but anyway those the, those two days sort of taught me the pushed me to my limits and then taught me um, the the value of being able to keep going despite you know adversity and whatever and how some, sometimes what we feel is a, is you know a complete brick wall in our way actually you can push on through it and you know I, I could have easily given up at that point but I didn't really have a choice and just was forced to keep going and so I see a direct correlation and, and that is translated to I've always been a risk taker, but you know that has translated since to how I, uh, uh, you know, how I approach life and direct correlation between you know, just reminding myself that hey, despite what I may feel are insurmountable obstacles, if I just keep going and push through this, I will get through this. And uh, so, I definitely see you know in that type of uh, direct relationship between mountain biking and, and risk taking and how we might approach life because. Uh, you know, I, I used to teach classes in the Don Valley to beginners, and it was amazing how these pe- people would come in extremely timid uh, on a mountain bike, but also timid in life. And over the course of six weeks, we we I, I would help them really build their confidence, and then see how their confidence on a mountain bike and their ability to tackle challenges and translates translated into their life and just general confidence uh, in life. So, yeah. I don't want to get too deep into it, but I definitely, you know, feel like there's there's great parallels between how we approach mountain biking and how we approach life. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, your story sounds like the um, kind of a key example or an, uh, an excellent example of the. Uh, I think it's a Navy SEAL kind of aphorism that uh, when you think that you're done, you're only forty percent. Yeah, yeah. Be dead. yeah, I read that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, it really is a mental game, and you know, in my in my classes about entrepreneurship, a huge amount of I spend a huge amount of time teaching people the mindset uh, or helping them develop the mindset of a successful entrepreneur. And having coached and worked with hundreds of entrepreneurs, I would say ninety percent of it is about mindset and about your ability to persist and about your ability to overcome adversity and not let uh, things knock you down. Uh, but also also to be open-minded, right? Some people, you can persist. You can persist at the absolute wrong thing and be completely closed-minded, like, this is not the right idea or I'm not reaching the right people or whatever. But, uh, you know, for me, my success, I, I attribute almost entirely to just, uh, like Woody Allen says, you know, it, it, it's, it's all about showing up. I think it's like 80% of success is showing up. I would probably put it more at 90%. And I've just kept going. And that... Uh, 
And it's very easy for people who are not used to the entrepreneurship game, who are used to you know, playing it safe in a regular nine to five kind of thing. It's very easy for them at the first sign of trouble or adversity or whatever to just, uh, and just kind of throw it in. This is too, this is too risky or too crazy or whatever. But uh, yeah, the people who succeed are the ones who just persist and doggedly keep going on and on. Uh, to shift gears just a little bit, one of the things I found really interesting about Sacred Rides just going through uh, the website is the fact that of how egalitarian the company is and the fact that you hire basically men and women equally. And this is, having worked a little bit in the, in the industry, I've seen that that's not a normal uh, kind of hiring practice at all. Uh, how do you think that um, we can kind of as mountain bikers push change uh, in that respect. I mean, after all, it's 2016. It's, uh, you know, the rest of the world is trying to, to move towards being more egalitarian. So mm-hmm. how can we kind of push that change in our, uh, in the sport that we're passionate about? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, I, I, wish, I wish I could say we were egalitarian in that respect. We still have a lot more men than women on our guiding staff. And that's it's simply, you know, there's a lot fewer women doing this sport. And so it's harder, especially in some of these developing countries that we're operating in. It's, you know, there really aren't qualified uh, women mountain bikers there who some of these, you know, countries, mountain biking has only been around for a few years. But that's, some, that's something we're actively trying to change. You know, you, you've probably seen that we have a line of women's trips. Um, we actively try and find qualified uh, female guides, uh, of course, and give them training. Um, we, and then, you know, we have women's camps, we have these bring your partner trips where the idea is typically, you know, the, the people who are going on these trips are men who mountain bike with their female partners who don't mountain bike. And then we try to introduce mountain biking to those partners in a sort of safe, you know, welcoming kind of manner, try to get them hooked uh, <clears throat> into the sport. So, uh, and the other thing is, you know, part of, part of the mission to bring mountain biking to so many countries in the world is it gets me excited to see the growth of it. And I, can't, I certainly can't take credit for, uh, for that. But you know, when we started operating in Peru back in 2006, the mountain bike uh, you know, quote-unquote scene was my lead guide and you know, a handful of his, his friends. And that was who was mountain biking in Peru. And it's, and it's exploded since then. And there's tons of tour companies. There's tons you know, of fantastic local scene developing. And, and that's really helping to drive the diversity the sport, because let's face it, you know, mountain biking is really, uh, you know, it's a white male sport, really. Uh, that's sort of the, been the, the core of it, and that's who you see mostly on the trails. And I would love to see that change and more and more people uh, from diverse backgrounds get, get into it. And, and it's great to see it uh, spreading around the world. But, you know, on a personal level, how can, how can you and how can I and how can we encourage it? Um, you know, I, I think just just trying to trying to encourage uh, our friends to to come check it out with us. And you know, most of the people that I've brought along with me just get hooked right away, and they're just like, "Wow, this is you know, this is such an incredible feeling being able to fly through the woods, uh, you know, on a bike, and it's it's like hiking plus adrenaline, you know." So, <clears throat> um, and you know, for, on a shop level here here in Toronto, it's it's actually quite hard to get a a, a rental a mountain bike rental. There's only a, you know, a couple shops really that are doing it. And I would love to see more shops offering them. And of course, you know, it's a market demand kind of thing. But I do believe there's a bit of a build it and they will come, especially for the shops that are located close to the Don Valley. 
you know, I think they could really develop a robust business, and, and I'll help them get the word out. You know, if they if they want some help, uh, that's one of the biggest. You know, people aren't going to spend two thousand dollars on a mountain bike just to try it out. And realistically, you can't spend less than five hundred dollars and get any sort of mountain bike that's going to last beyond the season. So it's not a there's a bit of a barrier to entry, but you know, for people that actually can rent a bike and try it out for a day and get out there and just get totally hooked, well, they might then say, hey, this is something I want to do. I'll save up my pennies or I'll find a good used bike or something like that. So I, I would love to see, you know, more more shops renting them or demo bikes or something. I just went to the demo day uh, in the Don Valley here and it's fantastic. All these different companies were out there demoing their new bikes and you could try them out for free, which is which was great. And um, the one thing I wouldn't recommend, the, the, the feedback I hear from a lot of our the women who go on our women's ride and ask me, how did you get into mountain biking? A lot of them say, well, my boyfriend or my husband tried to get me into it. And that typically backfires because the, the, the husband, the boyfriend really, you, you know, it's one of those things like if you've been mountain biking for 10 years, you probably become quite a good mountain biker, but you're totally unqualified as a teacher because you, you've forgotten what it's like to actually, you know, how difficult it can be when you're first starting out. And so I typically hear stories like, yeah, my boyfriend took me out and then he kind of got frustrated and ditched me after an hour and just left me on my own. And then I got frustrated and, yeah, I never did it again or something like that. And then, you know, maybe a year later they took an actual mountain bike camp or something like that and learned how to do it properly and, uh, with support. So, uh, you know, for anybody out there that – and this is guys and women. If you have a partner that doesn't mountain bike, you know, I, I suggest you do like a camp with them. Uh, you know, do a one-day camp or a weekend mountain bike camp. Trek Dirt Series has these great camps and all these other – uh, we kind of got out of the camp business, but there's other companies that do great mountain bike camps. And it's, uh, you know, three hours even with a good instructor will teach you enough basics that you can really get out there and learn on your own and do it safely. And Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I think uh, definitely um, uh, on my side, I, I know that I would like to do, but I, I can't kind of push that. But I hadn't thought about the uh, the fact that maybe being a seasoned mountain biker does not make you a good teacher. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's interesting. Well, it's, and it's funny because a lot of mountain bikers, myself included, you know, who've been mountain biking for 10 or 20 or more years, uh, become quite proficient, but you also develop bad habits. And, of course. And, uh, and so Johanna, who's one of our most senior guides, and she's a level three instructor, you know, she can... Uh, even with somebody who's like a really expert rider, she can spend an hour with them and say, hey, you know, like do this or do that, drop your elbow or whatever. And, you know, your riding will improve 20% just from, just from that one hour from getting rid of those, those bad habits. And, uh, you know, us seasoned mountain bikers, we develop those bad habits and then we pass them on to other people who haven't developed all the other skills. And, uh, but we don't know, you know, how to break it down. So there's, there's certain very, you know, there's certain very easy things you can do to teach somebody how to mountain bike. Like, you know, when you're going through a technical section, stand up out of the saddle and keep your pedals level, right? And we sort of do that intuitively, but don't know how to teach that to people. And uh, little things like that, that, you know, an instructor will just pass those on uh, in a flash. And then it's amazing how, you know, just that one little tip when I tell people, hey, if you're going downhill or it's getting technical or rudy or whatever, just stand up out of your saddle lowers your center of gravity, right? Off your seat, onto your pedals. And people are like, oh, wow, this is... Because most beginners, they're just staying seated the whole time and they're super wobbly going through rocks and stuff. So little things like that, and boom, like people get the confidence right away to be able to you know, stick with the sport. That's great. 
Um, so to finish all of my interviews, I like to do uh, kind of some quick hitting questions. All right. So uh, these are all you know, just quick answer. Um, so first one, Shimano. <laughs> Shimano or SRAM? Uh, Shimano. Uh, what's the best biking movie or video you've seen? Oh, that's a good question. Um, there was a, I, I don't know the name of it, it was three guys who kind of got lost in Peru like that. Do you know the movie I'm talking about? Um, it was, they were trying to cross Peru or something like that. I really can't remember. It was, it was a great just sort of example of the spirit of adventure on a mountain bike. I'll have to look that up. I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. Coffee or beer? Uh, both. <laughs> Coffee in the morning, beer in the afternoon. <laughs> uh, what's your favorite piece of gear? And can you give a two-word review? Uh, drop or post? Get it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you only had one place you could ride for the rest of your life, where would it be? Fernie, British Columbia. What's a tip that's helped you out in riding or life? Uh, keep your eyes focused ahead. What's your favorite post-ride beer? If it's available, it would be Bex. Um, a documentary is going to be made about your life. What genre is it and who plays you? Uh, it would probably be a comedy. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think it would probably be somebody ridiculous like Will Ferrell. <laughs> Last one, uh, Mike, I have some bad news for you. You're about to be sentenced to death. Uh, oh, what's dear. your last meal? I need an entree, a dessert, and a beverage. Ooh. Uh, my entree, it's, uh, it's going to be sushi. And I just ha actually had the pleasure of eating whale blubber for the first time in Greenland and loved it. Uh, so if somebody could make me whale blubber sushi, odd request, I know. Uh, entree, beverage, and dessert? Yeah. Uh, dessert is going to be tiramisu. Sure, love that stuff. And beverage is going to be Bex. Excellent. Yeah. All right, Mike. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And uh, thank you all for listening. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. Thank you all for listening. And thank you again to Mike for doing that interview. Mike's webpage is mikebersick.com that's m-i-k-e-b-r-c-i-c.com and also you can find his company at sacredrides.com he's also on twitter at mike bersick again that's m-i-k-e-b-r-c-i-c as always the intro music is by run the jewels i'm elon rotenberg and if you liked the podcast, you should subscribe on iTunes, on Stitcher, or whatever app you use to get your podcasts. If you have any comments, feedback, or suggestions for future guests, please send me an email at thenewstandardpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can leave a review on iTunes. I read all of those, I check them out, I take them very seriously, and I really try to incorporate your guys' feedback into future episodes. Otherwise, as always, you can follow the podcast on Instagram at The New Standard Podcast, Facebook at The New Standard Podcast, or you can follow me on Twitter at NSP underscore I-L-A-N. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you all next week.